Hello again, and welcome to the Master's Voice. I am Celestial, and you are welcome to this channel. To old and new subscribers alike, you are very welcome. The Master's Voice is available on many platforms. However, if you are a new subscriber or you just happen to come across this video on the algorithm, then I'd like to let you know that there's video and audio to choose from. Video is here on YouTube. There's a Spanish language channel also here on YouTube. The name of that channel is Canal Profetico, La Voz del Señor. There are video channels on BitChute, Brighton, and Rumble. And there on the alternate channels, you can find quite a few other videos that are no longer, no longer hosted here, such as the COVID-19 playlist. And I think it's about 25 videos that we're dealing with what was going on in the year 2020. Those videos can no longer be hosted here on YouTube, but there are more videos on those platforms. There's also audio, there's SoundCloud, there's Spotify, there's Apple and Google podcasts. There's a TikTok channel now and Instagram and Facebook and Telegram as well. And all that information is always handily below in the description box. So this prophecy that I have is from October the 28th, 2023, and building up to when the Lord finally gave me a settled word to write down. This was concerning things that God was telling me in my own personal times, things that he was telling me about the changing of times, the fact that we should be very much focused on doing whatever it is we have to do. This is not only doing whatever we have to do in our spiritual lives, doing whatever it is that the tasks that God has given us, the callings that God has given us to rise up in those callings and fulfill them. God was also just saying that we need to be diligent in our daily tasks because we do not understand as mankind just how swiftly the season is changing, just how swiftly time is finishing, just how swiftly events will transpire. Events are going to transpire very, very quickly. If anyone is watching the television now and thinking how swiftly things have happened, one minute we were fine, and then all of a sudden Russia just pounced on Ukraine and that started happening. And then pipelines were being blown up and the United States was using plausible deniability and said, maybe it was us, maybe not, but maybe. And then we were looking at all these events playing out. And now here we are with so much political tension taking place in the Middle East. And all I can share from this end is that while simply doing dishes the other day, I heard the voice of the Lord say to me in a very grave tone, my daughter, there will be a great war, a very great war. So. The title of today's prophecy from October the 28th, 2023 is called Build My House. And it contains things that God wants us to know. This is to the church of Jesus Christ first. This is to the church of Jesus Christ first. And primarily when you listen to this prophecy, you will understand that this is a call to the church of Jesus Christ to come back to the true things. And it is unfortunate that God has to be calling the church to come back to the true things. But the truth of the matter is that the church is mostly gone astray. The church is mostly lost. And this is primarily because the church is following an internal blueprint in its own heart. So the church is an amalgam. The church is a unit, a body. It's us, the living stones inside the house of God. It's not the buildings that we go to that soon 
we will not be able to go to those buildings anymore. Please don't forget that it was only a few months ago when the Lord brought the prophecy that there is another lockdown coming and this lockdown will be much deeper than the one that we had in 2020. It will be much deeper. It will be much more painful. It will be far more wide reaching with stronger mandates than we knew then. So church is once again going to go away, but God is talking to the people who say, and I use that very pointedly, the people who say they are his, he's calling them to come back to certain structural truths, certain basic foundational understanding. And this is because sometimes they don't know it. People are going around and they're wearing the tag of a Christian, but they don't actually know what a Christian is. They don't follow Christian values. They don't follow Christian ethics. They don't follow the laws of the Christ. They just use the tag. And what they do is they just sew up some kind of weak garment of fig leaves that's mostly their desire, how they want to interpret the word of God. And then they say that this is their Christianity and that God understands, but God does not understand. There is only one truth. There's only one blueprint built on one Messiah, and we are all supposed to be following it so that as the Lord looks into individual hearts, he should see only one image being built up in all of us. And that is the image of his own dear son in whose image we are being shaped until the final day when we stand before the Lord. If you look like anything else, if you look like your choice, if you look like what you want to believe, if you look like popular culture and what everybody believes on TikTok and Facebook, you don't have the image of the Christ in you. You are building up an idol inside that is actually an image of yourself and what you want to practice and what you want to believe. And that thing, whatever it is that you were building, it will be judged and it will be swept away and you will be empty handed when we stand before the Lord. So the banner scripture is this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Now, please bear in mind the title of this prophecy is called Build My House. So this is the Lord telling us that there's a house to be built and that we are supposed to be building it and that the house is his. It's not ours. It is the Lord's. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. And that's Luke 14 and verse 28. But I'm just going to expand here so that you can get a little bit of context for this verse. From verse 26, many multitudes have come to Jesus. They've come to hear Jesus teaching. So people used to travel from all over to hear the rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ teaching. They wanted to hear his wisdom. They wanted to hear the way that he would reposit, reposition, and represent these very same biblical laws that they had been having for years and years and years, decades and centuries before Jesus was born. But when Jesus would be bringing out the word of God, it was so fresh and it was so new and it was so different and it was so dynamic that very soon crowds of people started following him wherever he went and crowds of people started gathering to hear him speak. Now great multitudes went with him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, 
and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So picture this scene in your mind. We have a large group of people. They've been following Jesus, multitudes, which means a massive, massive group of people, men, women, and children. Town by town, the crowd is growing as Jesus is following his assignment to get this gospel out, to teach the word of God in all the cities that would receive him. And so he turns to these people that are with him and everybody's listening because they can see he's about to speak. This is a teachable moment. All the hearts are open and everybody wants to hear what this man is saying. But what seems to come out of his mouth is that he seems to be telling people to hate their family members, to hate their wife and children, to hate their father and mother, to hate their own brothers and sisters, to even hate themselves, to hate their own lives. If they don't do that, then he says, you can't be my disciple. And if you don't also pick up the cross and come after me, you can't be my disciple. And he goes on and he's further challenging them. And he's telling them, if you had to build a tower, so if you had to build a tall and fancy building, he says, wouldn't you sit down and work out mathematically using an abacus and counting your coins to see if you had enough to finish the work before you started it? Wouldn't you count how much it would cost you? Isn't this what you do in the market? Don't you go and you buy goods and services, but before you ask for a thing, you already check your pocket to know if you can afford it or not. He says that if you don't do this, and if you embark on any kind of building project, especially a tower. So Jesus doesn't say, which man intending to build a one bedroom? Which man intending to build a little hut? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say who of you intending to build a small little shed that doesn't use much energy or wood. He says a tower. This is a great, tall, noticeable, and magnificent thing. He says who of you wanting to build something that is great and tall and noticeable and magnificent is not going to first check how much it would cost him and if he has enough to finish it. Because if a man lays the foundation on such a work, and then finds that he doesn't have enough to finish it, he will become an object of mockery. And people will look at him and say, look, he started such a big project, but he can't finish it. So what do you think the people are thinking as they're staring at Jesus? They're standing there, their wife is standing next to them and their child is standing next to them. And this man has said, if you're coming after me and that woman and that child next to you, you don't hate them, you can't be my disciple. Wouldn't it have been confusing for them? If that was what Jesus was saying, this would have been an offensive saying to them. And there's, <clears throat> there's doubtless people standing there who heard him say this and interpreted it exactly like that. But Jesus had a way about speaking. There was a time in the New Testament where he was sitting and teaching and his mother and his brothers came to him 
It doesn't say to us in the text why they came to see him, but they knew where he was and they came to where he was teaching. And it was made known to him, teacher, your mother and your brothers are outside. Now, most of us finding that our family has come to the place where we are would say, oh, excuse me. And we will go out to greet them. But Jesus didn't break his teaching. He did not stop what he was doing, which he already let us know from age 12 was being about his father's business. He said in the hearing of all the people right there before him, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of my father. Jesus had a way about him of making his points very clear. And what Jesus was saying to these people, as you can hear in the banner scripture is this, if anything in your life is more important, if anything in your life takes center stage more than me, you're not fit to follow me. That's what he's saying. He's making it clear. Jesus is actually showing you that contrary to what many people believe today, that Christianity is absolute. There is a strong confusion in the world today that every single person can be a Christian. Christianity is open to all, but it is a fallacy that every single person can be because Jesus is telling you here that there are people who will lay the foundation and fall out they will not be able to complete the journey. He talks about that also in the book of Matthew, where he talks about the seed that will fall and find different kinds of grounds. Some of them will have 30-fold returns, 60-fold return, he says, 100-fold return. Some of them, he says, the birds will gobble up the seeds and fly off with them. If a seed is in the belly of a bird, I can tell you where it's not. It's not in the ground growing and producing anything. It's null and void for that seedling, it's gone, it's snatched up. He talks about other seedlings that will hit the ground, they will start growing, but he says that when the heat of persecution starts, so as soon as it's time to suffer something for Jesus Christ, as soon as they turn the heat on Christians and begin to point to us and say, it's them and their unreasonable God, then people will say, I'm not a Christian. They'll start to deny the Lord just like Peter did when the pressure was put on during the night that Jesus was taken from the garden. The faith of God is open to everyone, but Jesus is a very pragmatic person. He knows the hearts of people. He knows how we are. And he was telling them, there's a particular posture to keep if you wanna make it in this faith. If you want to be a discipled follower, which means a disciplined follower of myself, Jesus Christ, then the first thing you'll do is you will move everything in your life a little bit to the right and give me my proper position in your life. The next thing he says is that if you don't bear your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. So this means is if you think that Christianity is absolutely separate from suffering, I'm speaking to the we're not appointed to wrath crowd. Those people who think, that Christianity is just check in like a hotel and then there's nothing to be suffered, there's nothing to be borne, there's no trial, there's no tribulation, there's no testing, there's no purging, there's no refiner's fire, there's no winnower's fan, there's none of the things that the Bible actually tells us there are. All we need to do is come to Christ and start singing a few songs and then before you know it, there's a little mild discomfort, just a prick, and then we're off. People who think that this is something that just rolls over easily in a well-oiled and greased machine and that Christians don't go through anything. Jesus is talking about the cross. He hasn't even gone to the cross. So the people might be standing there and thinking, what is he talking about? 
The cross wouldn't be unfamiliar to them because they've seen the cruelty of the Romans. They know what the Romans do, but Jesus is telling them that if you're not like those men that are out there with the instrument of death upon their backs, trudging their way up to the public square where they all are put to death in front of everyone for their crimes or perceived crimes in the eyes of Rome, he says that you cannot be my disciple. And then he says, if you're intending to build something truly mighty and something truly great and noticeable in this faith, but you don't check if you have enough to build until the end, if you don't check to make sure that what you start, you can finish just a moment to make sure that what you start, you can finish, but see how he ends this. He doesn't say you cannot be my disciple. So this one, it's not the Lord who is disqualifying you by telling you, if you cannot do this, you cannot be my disciple. In this one, he says that if you start this thing and you start, oh, one way, Jesus, I'm in, I'm in it to win it. But he says, you don't actually check if you're able to pay the bills of Christianity. Indeed, this is not a costless faith. This is not a costless walk. He says that if you actually do not check that you have enough to finish what you start, then men are going to mock you. And the reason that they will mock you is because they will see the unfinished work of your life, the unfinished work of your faith. And they will say, this one started to build, but could not finish. Now, what is unsaid here is that there is a far greater pain than being mocked by men because you couldn't finish what you started. You start a building and then you don't have enough money to finish the apartment building for rent, like you said, or you don't have enough money to renovate the house, like you said, and now your house is unsightly and people are walking by and saying, oh, they started that project two years ago, poor people. I think they ran into bankruptcy troubles and they haven't finished it. they are far greater pains than to be mocked by men on earth. If you start this walk of faith and you fall out, you will not be able to stand before the Lord at the end of your life and receive a well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. No one's going to be mocking you in those days, but an unfinished life will not be able to enter into the rest of the Lord. And this is something that I would like you to hold in your mind as you are listening to the Lord's words concerning the things that he was talking to me about using time wisely. I'm going to be going through scripture with this entire word. And so on the morning of October 28th, God was speaking to me words of exhortation and admonition, words that I share now with the church to stay steadfast in their journey, their journey through this world, to stay on the narrow way and to not go astray because of popular beliefs that can creep in and destroy their salvation. God was talking to me about time, and he's been talking to me about time quite a lot, telling me, Celestial, be judicious with your time. Being judicious with your time means that it's not only that you're watching time. It's not just, oh, I'll watch my time. I'll monitor the clock. It's not about that. Being judicious with your time actually means <clears throat> that you may have several tasks in front of you that are all important. You might have two or three things that all need to be done between the two to 4 p.m. slot. But within a few moments of assessing how much work goes into each task, 
you can figure out, I'm not going to be able to do all three. That means that judicious means that you are able to look and choose wisely. It means that you are able to make rapid assessments and decide what is an absolute and then what task is the follow-up absolute, meaning that one definitely gets the second spot. And then what has to fall into the third spot and hopefully you'll do as much of that final task as you can. And if not, you'll roll it into your 5 to 7 p.m. slot or you will have to keep it for the next day or another time. Being judicious with your time basically almost means being jealous with your time. It means that not everything needs you there. It's not every event they invite you to that you absolutely have to must say yes. You don't have to show up at everything. You don't have to be there for everything. You might be able to say, this is a very important event, not because it's important to me, but because it's a, it's a milestone in someone else's life. I'm going to go to that. And then there's something, if you think about it, you may not necessarily need, necessarily need to be there, or it means something to someone. It might even mean something to you. You can be there, but you don't need to be there for the stretch of time that you might normally give to that thing. Why? We need to begin to wisely cull time away from activities that waste time so we can do what? Two things that God is talking about. So we can apply that time into more useful projects in more useful ways. One of those ways that he was talking about is fulfilling calling, fulfilling tasks, fulfilling um, dreams, fulfilling things that God has planted in us, given to us to finish but the other one doesn't even need to be said. It's to work on your relationship with the Lord. It's to strengthen yourself in light of the times that you can see we are now in. These times are not the worst times. Please understand. If you've still got the lights on and there's still something to eat, you are still within the four walls of your own home. Please understand there is no tribulation going on outside yet to those who think that the tribulation already happened. I don't know what kind of mass confusion and delusion is at work in the church of Jesus Christ. Even if you were not alive in the 1800s, the 1400s, what on earth makes a person living today think that the tribulation has already happened or that we are in the tribulation period? Can the tribulation possibly happen in a vacuum? Could it happen while we are asleep and we become unaware of mass death, mass murder, and mass suffering, diseases, plagues, the red horse war breaking out across the whole earth. Could this thing have happened while we were perhaps watching the Super Bowl? Why are people thinking this way? What is happening? What is getting into the minds of people who say they are children of God? When you read the Bible and you draw from it what it says, what would lead you into the thoughts that the things that John is speaking about in the book of Revelation have happened? And then... They happened, and then we somehow came back into this society and we're carrying on paying for our subscription services and putting gas in the car. What is happening? So the Lord was speaking about time, that I need to judge time judiciously. And it's not only me, it's everyone who's listening to this, because he says time is draining out of the hourglass. Time is running out. The Lord has warned me many times, my daughter, be diligent in your work. And this is why I employ the practices that I do, that I was explaining, that I, I will pray before my tasks. I will pray and I will ask for grace. I will ask for divine speed. I will say, Lord, I know how long this thing takes, but I'm asking you to now put wind under me, put wind under me and lift me up 
just the way eagles ride on the wind. Lift me up so that I can do this thing in half the time so that I won't be caught lagging. And so I don't have to roll it into tomorrow because I began to notice that there were a lot of tasks that were ending up being rolled into tomorrow against my will. Either the workload was being increased or there are less people available to share that workload, meaning that each person who is available is getting that much more of a chunk to add on to what is normally there. And it's become very clear to me that the days are not long enough for all the tasks that are there. And so that only leaves two options. You can be running and chasing like a dog after a car and that will soon wear you out, burn you out, or you need to begin to press more in the spirit realm to receive grace to do what you have to do. So God was telling me that time is draining out of the hourglass, that I should be diligent with my work. I should make use of all the time available to me so that my days can be fruitful and pleasing to him. And he was saying that people, mankind does not have as much time left as we think. Mankind does not have as much time left as we think because the world is rapidly changing according to spiritual commands of the Lord. These spiritual commands are not God sitting and saying, and this happened, this happened. It's just basically things that were written down in the scripture long ago. Their time has come. I just brought the prophecy here called an iron decree. And I said, I think that prophecy is from 2021, early 2021. And I said that I saw the time had come for the prophecies to come true. I said that I saw little screens in the sky. Some of the screens were in the sky and each screen was a prophecy that I have made playing out. So the sky was full of screens, this screen, that screen, and some of the screens were taking place here on earth. So I guess the ones in the sky would be Nephilim prophecies, alien prophecies, things of the heavens, such as the darkness that will come upon the earth, living darkness I've spoken of. But then there were prophecies here on the earth. This country is going to do this to that country, and that is going to happen in this place and that place, and diseases and wars and things like that. And what happened is the screens began to run together. At first it was one screen and another screen, but then the screens began to run together. And that is what the Bible talks about. But just in a pictorial form, that is the birth pains. Birth pains hit one and then hit another one. But then after a while, they begin to come in concert. They begin to run one into another. And then the whole earth will go into very severe mourning. And I can promise everyone that when the real actual tribulation starts, not a single person is going to say something like, didn't it already happen? And now we're in the new millennium. There are no bills in the new millennium, people. So we don't have as much time left as we think. And the spiritual commands are just the fulfillment of the prophetic times that were written long ago. And the Lord said that soon every household will be tested, not only by the times, we will not only be tested by the day-to-day pressures and stresses of, for instance, having a government that no longer obeys its own laws, but begins to make new laws so that it can break the old laws and take advantage of the people. But we will also be tested according to the word of God. The word of God is the Bible. You may not be born again as you come to this channel. This may have just come across your screen. You are welcome and God bless you. But this is the final authority for all things man. This book legislates how we are to live, how we are to love, the family structure, the family unit, 
government structure, how governments should operate, how governments should not operate, how we should deal with our gold, our silver, how we should deal with our time, how, should, how we should deal with the foreigner among us, how we should deal with our community. Everything to do with human flesh is legislated by the word of God. It's not the word of God plus what you feel. It's not the word of God plus what your pastor said. It is the word of God. If your pastor is off center by even a millimeter, then you need to pray for that man so that he can come back to center and teach the true word of God. Because if your pastor or your pride or your attitude or the TikTok video videos or whatever other thing is leading you astray from what this says, you will answer for it on the day you stand before the Lord as I saw in this message. And what I saw in this message is that a very, very wealthy man, a very, very wealthy man, an icon, I saw him standing before God and he was frozen. He was frozen. And it's not like the Lord was asking him 10,000 questions. God just asked him one question and that man was mute. He was like this, just like the cartoons when they're frozen, he could not answer. And the question was simply this, what did you do for me? So when I woke up that day, this is just the recent things that God has been sharing with me that I now make known to you. When I woke up that morning, October the 28th, I heard the Lord say to me very strongly, emphatically, in a clear and warning tone, God can hit many harmonics with one sentence. It's so strange how his voice can be. It will have love in it, but it will also have warning it will also have admonition. It will be the face that your mother is giving you when she's trying to help you, but she's trying to help you not to cross her. That kind of face. And he said to me strongly, Celestial, build my house. Build my house. Build my house. Jesus did the same thing to Peter. He said, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. This is emphasis. This is, I want to make sure that you are hearing me. I want to make sure that you don't think I'm talking to anybody else because there's just you in this house. I'm talking to you. And so when I heard the Lord saying to, saying it to me like that, my mind was like, oh, what, what have I, oh, what have I left? What is it that I have not done? And I was listening very keenly and he was just saying, build my house. And then he said, build my kingdom. Build a place for my spirit to dwell. Every gift and talent, every waking moment that you have is to glorify me and to bring honor to my name. Put your time into my house, celestial. Put your gifts to work where they can do the most good and do it soon because the days are evil. Put your talents into the ground and let them grow. The time is near where you cannot do anything for the kingdom without extreme risk of loss or even harm. Work while the daylight remains. And so you can't hear words like this from the Lord first thing in the morning and just think that, oh, you know, this is just another admonition. This is just another helping word from the Holy Spirit. No, this is God making it very clear to all believers I'm talking to the true believers first. And the reason I'm talking to you first, people of God, is because you are actually hitting it on the mark. You are like David and his mighty men. 
every time you use your left hand with the sling or your right hand with the bow and arrow, when you loose that thing, you either are hitting it 10 out of 10, you're hitting it nine out of 10, you're hitting, hitting it eight out of 10, you're even hitting it seven out of 10, which is pretty good. You are the people who are closest to the mark. So you are the people, when you hear this word of God, you will become galvanized. You will be very excited. You will know that we are coming into the times where the fullness of your gifts, your skills, your callings are about to be released. You will be very excited. And when you hear the sound of my voice, when you hear God saying, put your time into the kingdom, like he's saying to me, put your time into my house celestial, then I know I don't need to be told that the time to start transitioning out of these nine to five isms is close. That time is very close for some of you. For some of you, you should have, you should have already crossed into it, but you're hesitant because you're watching the market outside. You're watching as people are losing their jobs and you're watching as more and more people have to go on unemployment. And you know what? The winds and the waves are pretty strong out there. And so you've been thinking that perhaps it's wiser to put it off until next year. And you think that maybe you should wait until another two years until you're sure how things are going to go. But God is saying that the sand is coming out of that little hourglass shape thing far faster than we know. And so if there's a business in you, if there's a daycare in you, if there's anything in you that doesn't require your current boss to be over you, then you need to begin rapidly assessing. You need to sit down and to begin counting the cost. You need to begin to count the cost and see how much is it going to cost to at least get started on this tower. And then you need to move into deeper faith and trust God that he's not going to leave you with a half-baked foundation or a half-baked tower that you then can't complete. A lot of people think that starting out into new ventures in Christianity is a risk. This is actually the faith that we are called to. It is risky to see the sea open and be told, well, cross on through. It's dry. Get moving. And you're looking at the walls of water on the side and you're thinking, well, what in the name of gravity that has not been discovered yet is keeping this water up? How do I know that the water won't fall on me? Surprise, surprise. You don't. The water is open for a season. And your job is to have enough trust in the God who opened it that he will let you walk through on the dry land and he will not let you be destroyed. So those of you who are obedient, those of you who you're already praying, you're already hearing the Lord, you already have the stirrings of the thing that you are meant to be doing. You are closest to the mark. You are not like the ones that I'm going to have to chase far off in the fields and the hills. The ones who want to contest every single word that comes out of my mouth, but how do you know how, where your dreams? I... There are people who just, the food is on the table. They've got two spoons. I'm getting as much of this stuff as this woman is serving. As long as she doesn't stop me, I'm getting it. I'm watching this video five times, 10 times to get what I need because the Holy Spirit, when I watch it, I'm electrified. I'm galvanized. I'm moving. I'm changing. God cares about you that listens. Believe it or not, every person who is a parent knows this. You love your kids that obey. You love your kids that get good grades. Your heart is naturally open to them. The children who say thank you when you do stuff for them, the children who are grateful, the children who remember anniversaries and birthdays for you and your husband. 
They, they share what they have with you. They say, mom, I, I got this and I was thinking about you and I kept some, even if it's an extra slice of pizza. As a parent, your heart is soft towards those people. But there's a lot of people in Christianity who thinks that, think that God has the same softness to everybody. Obedient, disobedient, rude, not rude, righteous, not righteous, carnal, not carnal. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. God loves all. He even loves the sinners out there. But it's a proven fact that the sinners are not getting into heaven. So this should tell you something about the heart of God. He hasn't hidden anything from us. So if you hear this word and you know it's for you, start to work on your plan. Start to work on your transitioning out of there. Because the water is open. It's open. You need to get your little sandals out there. And even if you have to hold on to the ground and inch your way across, at least get moving. This is what he's saying. Build the house of God. Put your gifts to work, he says. Put them to work where they can do the most good and do it soon because the days are evil. Let your talents go into the ground and let them grow because the time is near where you will not be able to do anything for the kingdom. And we have already been speaking of those times. The time will come if they catch you with a Bible. I said that they will not only take that book from you and burn it, but it is most likely that the hand that was holding it when they caught you will be chopped off in the name of Sharia law. They will be hunting Christians. We will be outlawed. We will be persona non grata. And so obviously when God is saying that the time is limited to be able to do good works for this kingdom, he knows what he is talking about because persecution will arise like thorns for our flesh. And so work while the daylight remains, he said. That's John chapter nine and verse four. And the verse is, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day for the night cometh when no man can work. And then he also says, work because the days are evil. Here's the verse. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so just listen to this one passage. There's so much richness in it. It tells us exactly what I was saying before. To walk circumspectly means that you are aware of all aspects that can try to rob your time. You are aware of all aspects that might try to cause delays to your time being most efficient. You are paying attention. Where can I sow my time? If I sow my time here, right? Let, let, me, let me use examples that affect me directly. And if you can relate to it, then you can relate to it. Which part of it is more useful if I deliver the word of God to those who want the word of God, then the seed is effective in them. But by the same token, because I can't control who watches these videos, I'm delivering the word of God. And then some people take it upon themselves to tear the word of God down, to cast doubt on the word of God, 
to go all over the place and say, no, this is the word of witchcraft and the word of divination. And oh no, you can't tell because it's cleverly disguised as salvation teaching. So then where is the word? Where is the seed going to prosper more? Obviously it's in the hearts that don't have rocks, the hearts that don't have stones. So then that is where obviously more prayer and more focus will have use. That is where it will be. And so being circumspect means that you're not only just watching the clock. It's not about that. You're trying to see with the time that's on the clock, where can I sow it so that the most returns come back to me? Circumspect means that you're watching all angles of a thing in a 360 degree watchfulness phase. And he says, don't be fools, live wise, redeem your time. I've shared before that my, that my old pastor always used to say, stop complaining about not having time for God, because the truth of the matter is that you have all the time with God that you want. Everyone gets the same 24 hours. He says, if you choose to sleep 12 of those hours, then that's what you choose to do with those 12 hours. Meaning that you just have 12 more to decide how much is work, how much is commuting, how much is your family, how much is friends, how much is TV, how much is everything else, and how much also is God. He said, you have as much of God or as little of God as you want. And if you're complaining that you have a job that is taking up more time, you're not going to get an extra dispensation of time so that you can have time for God, quote fingers. What happens is you're going to go into your available cache of time, your sleeping time, your pedicure time, your personal this time, taking the dogs for a walk time, your Netflix time, the time you spend on um, Fortnite and video games, you're going to go into your available time. You're going to look at it and you're going to begin to cut time from other things. You're going to cut down on frivolities so that you can cull and put together a large cache of time. And then you're going to give that time to God, some of it in the morning and some of it at night. It's good to meditate on the word of God in the morning and at night. It bookends your life in safety. Don't do that. I'm a night person thing or no, I'm a morning person thing. If you're a morning person, then naturally your, your prayers are stronger in the morning. If you're a night person, your prayer and your quiet time is stronger at night. But you cannot leave your morning gates unattended, nor can you leave your evening gates open. And that's because not a single person watching this video will walk out of their house and leave a window open because he's a door person or leave the door unlocked because you're a window person. It's the same logic. So apply it to your spiritual life. The parable of the talents is basically where a man was going on a long journey. You can find it in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. He was going on a long journey and he called his servants to him and he gave one servant five talents. So let's just call it five bundles of gold. He gave one servant two and he gave one servant one. And then he took his leave and he went on a journey without telling the servants where he was going or when he was coming back. So the Bible says immediately. It didn't say that the servants went into Netflix and chill. It says immediately the master left. The one who had received the greatest portion, five bundles of gold, five talents, he went off to trade. It didn't say he took it to church. It says he, he took what he was given, which was gold, which was talent, which was money. He took it to the marketplace and he traded it. And it says he made five more. Now, please understand for this man to have made five more, he didn't go and say, oh, I have gold and I'm just begging for help. And I'm just asking, you know, whoever can reach out. No, he went to the marketplace and used skill. He used dexterity, which is ability to move and hustle and get things done. 
He watched the market. He made connections. He talked. He worked. He sold. He reaped. Maybe he didn't, maybe he even had a few losses. But then he looked at, maybe he made losses. Maybe he went down to four talents and thought, oh man, I've got to rebound. Whatever he did, he moved five to 10. And the man who received two moved it from two to four. But the guy who got one, the guy who got the smallest amount, for whatever reason, I'm not going to put words in that man's mouth because he spoke for himself. Ultimately, he took the talent and he buried it. He did not go into the marketplace like the others. He did not hustle like the others. In fact, while the others headed out into the marketplace, this dude went to the farm to bury something that does not belong in the ground. The gifts, the callings, the talents, they don't belong in the ground. You are the ground they were planted in. And this world is the soil you are planted in. And the Holy Spirit is that grace and that abundance that is supposed to have that seed bursting out of the ground. But this is not taking place, whether because of low self-esteem, whether because of fear, negligence, laziness, a lot of self-entitlement. Christians are not bursting out of the ground. They're just following the first part, unless the seed falls into the ground. So the seed is falling into the ground and then absolutely nothing is happening. It's just lying there, dormant, season after season, excuse after excuse, if only I had this, and maybe when I have time and then nothing is coming out. And when the master came back, he told the other two, well, I can certainly see that the work paid off. I can certainly see the effort. I can definitely see the hustle. And he said that they would enter into his joy and he also told them that because they were faithful with little, he would let them rule over much. But the last guy, he told him, well, you say that I'm unkind and I, that I like to reap where I haven't sowed, but you don't seem to have brains. Because he says that if you did, you would not have taken this thing that doesn't belong buried in the ground on a farm. You wouldn't have taken it and put it where it does not belong. You would have taken my money to the bankers and put it in the bank so it could gain a little bit of interest. And that servant was rebuffed. He was rejected. He was told that he was wicked and that he was going to be put in the outer darkness where he would grind his teeth together. And that is not a good end for anyone. So the Lord said, and I wrote it down here, if you have any gift... Any talent, talent, anything at all that glorifies God and you have not sowed it yet and you are holding on to it because of fear, negligence, or any other reason, you will give an account of why you hid the talent instead of using it. Every man, woman, and child will be asked what they did for Jesus. Everyone. Even the rich and famous will be asked that question. There will be no separation on that day, except for those who gave their all for the kingdom of God to be separated from those who served other masters. So this does not need much explanation. It is very clear. The Lord is basically showing that he is a good father, but he's also a good businessman. When you see this parable where it's talking about even, even the man who received one talent, God is saying that 
he knows that we're not all Usain Bolt. So not everybody has that kind of bright, shining gift that that man had. Not everybody is a Mike Tyson who can just carve out an iconic sports career with one knockout punch like he could. Not everybody's an amazing writer, but God is saying that he made sure that everyone has something. And so whether it's someone who has many blazing talents or someone who has one, and he says, you're holding on to it because you're afraid to use it. You're afraid. What if I fail? What if people mock me? Well, what if people mock you? Who cares? Who are people? Where do they factor in this thing called your life? There will always be someone to celebrate you. There will always be someone to think that what you did is great. If the sales are not 50 million, so what? If the book goes into the hands of 500 people and they all give you great reviews and they all think this thing changed my view of God or this thing changed my view of how to do business, this thing changed my view of how to raise children, then who cares if it's iconic? First of all, look at the world we live in. Look at the culture we live in. Footballers are making 800 gazillion dollars and doctors are making 16 cents. So there's obviously an upended sense of values and ethics in our society. So it's not necessary for the world to celebrate you. The world can and celebrate you. I'm not going to hate on you if you if you hit it big. Because God also has kings in the word of God as much as he has peasants. He has all levels. There are people that God are going to lift you right up. And then there's people, what God wants out of you is simply to raise that one baby. That one baby that you have because you don't know what is in that child. You alone know that your child is special. You know it. And everyone just thinks, you know, she's just partial because that's a mother's love. No, there's an incredible mother load of something in that child. And you can feel it. The Holy Spirit always gives you insight how to raise the baby, that one child. Because the Holy Spirit is guarding the deposit in there. Because when that deposit comes out, you will be shocked. You will be shocked what your child was. You will be shocked what you were the mother of. But you can't know it now, and faithfulness is what is required. And God is saying that if you're holding on to it, he's going to ask you why you held on to it. Because guess what? The talents are not yours to hold on to. That's right. Usain Bolt's legs are on his body, but the running and the glory of it was for the Lord. God made that running machine, that human, that puma in human skin. God made that. And every time that man ran, God gloried in it and said, look at what I made. God gets the glory for that. Whether the runner actually glorifies God or not, you can never paint a picture and sign it and have the glory handed over to someone else. That's why the people who say that this world exploded into nothing, we just all know that there are functional breakdowns in the logic that I'm not going to go into. Because there is no way the, intric the intricacy and the beauty of this thing this world that we live in just happened and then nothing came and signed his name at the bottom. The very definition of nothing means that it doesn't exist. This is a world of design, a world of care, a world with love woven into every seam. That's how it was intended. That's how it was created. It has been marred. It has been disfigured by the tenets 
that live here. But we have a promise that the original designer will make all things new in his time. And that is what all of us, including this poor world, is waiting for. So let us continue. The Lord says, even the rich and famous will be asked the question, what did you do for God? And on the final day, the separation that will exist will be between those who gave their all for the kingdom of God, whether it was raising the baby or whether it was raising capital and building wells in some country that needs wells, whatever it is, those who gave their all for the kingdom of God will be separated from those who served other masters, other masters, yourself, other masters, popular culture, other masters. You want to be an influencer, other masters, false gods, false religions. You want to follow the fallen angel sect. You want to be an ancient Babylonian sect. You want to be something that the Lord was speaking to me about this morning. Kemet. And I'm sitting there. Kemet. I've heard this thing before. And he says an ancient Egyptian gods, and he's judging them out of Deuteronomy 17. And then I do the most brief Googling because my policy is I'm not getting defiled just to warn people about the sins that they're in. I'm not doing a two, three hour, 24 hour deep dive just to find out what Kemetism is and Egyptian religions is because the short the short end of the stick is if the Lord says, if you get into those things, when he's judging those idols and judging those demons that have raised up these false religions, that actually a lot of African-Americans are getting into. African religions, he was speaking of ancestral religions and Kemetic religion, which is primarily this thing of wearing onks and going back to the the ancestors and the practices of ancient Egypt, delving into Egyptology and all that. It's a whole religion. But the long and short of it can be found in Deuteronomy 17. And the Lord was showing me that in ancient Egypt, I mean, in ancient Israel, if you bow down to any other God, basically the ending was to be taken to the edge of the camp and stoned. And spiritually, because we do not stone people now, he was just making it clear that all those who follow anything that is not God, you will be spiritually stoned. Spiritual stoning is pretty much just Satan being able to have his way with you. And in the times that we are going with, Satan is going to take lives. You can listen, you cannot listen. You can argue, you know that you are always free here at the Master's Voice Prophecy blog. The devil will take lives to those who go into this. We're waiting on the sky fathers to come back. We're waiting on the angels to descend and share power with us. The ascended masters will return. They will return. This is a fact. And when they come back, there will be mass deductions from the human population because of hardness of heart and deaf ears. So I saw a picture after God said that even the rich will answer, I saw the picture of a very rich man, iconic, the kind of man who's created a lifelong and well-known legacy of success that is known across the whole world. A man who lacks nothing, a man who everyone listens to when he speaks. This man had died as I saw him in the vision and he was standing before the judgment seat of God and his posture was frozen. This man was frozen. He was standing as if stuck in a pose like this, of fear and just inability to speak. And he was paralyzed and the Lord was asking him one question. What did you do for the Lord? And he was stuck 
and he couldn't answer. He was the spitting image, and he appeared to be the full likeness of the multi-billionaire that is known as Warren Buffett. So, a study of building a house. What does it mean, build a house? That is the title of this prophecy. After all, build my house. We can look first at 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build God a house. And David wakes up and he's telling Nathan, the prophet, who is also his, his close friend in those days, the kings, they were very blessed to have the prophets next to them, guiding them, because the prophet would bring a lot of insights and a lot of understanding to a king. And a king who was mindful of the Lord's word as came through the prophet was often blessed with a long reign that was fruitful, successful, and things like that. And so it says here in 2 Samuel 7, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant, David, Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have moved about in a tent, in a tabernacle. Whenever I moved about with the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore, Thus shall you say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord. And then to shorten it, the message that God sends to David through Nathan, the prophet is young man. I took you from the sheepfold. I took you from looking after those animals. And I have now made you a shepherd and a ruler over my people, Israel. And I've been with you, David, anywhere that you've gone. And I've cut off all your enemies from before your face. I've given you a great name, David like the name of all the great men who have ruled upon this earth. And he says that I will choose a place for Israel and I will plant them and they won't be wandering anymore. Since the time that I told my judges to rule my people, I have now given you rest from all your enemies and I, the Lord David, will build you a house. And thus comes a very great covenant that wows David. And this is because David's love for his father is so great that this man is relaxing in his magnificent palace, okay? God has finally taken him out of the shrubbery where Saul has caused him to live for almost 20 years on the run, destroying that young man's name, accusing him falsely of all kinds of things, forcing him to even cross into Gath and live with the Philistines for a year and six months, something that was surely difficult for a consecrated Israelite, but he did it because he had to save his life. And now God finally brings him and gets rid of the dynasty of Saul, establishes David. He has all these wives. He has all these children. And now God tells him, that's not all. I'm going to establish a covenant with you and I'm going to build you a house. And David is so flabbergasted. And this is the kind of feedback that people who really love God get from God. David wants to build God a house and God now tells him, I'm going to establish you a house and Kings are going to come out of your body. So, Building God a house starts first and foremost with a heart for God, 
This is the question that a lot of Christians don't ask themselves. You're in Christianity. Do you actually conform to what our God loves? So are you out there loving the modalities of the world? Are you loving the current policies of the United States that change like Christmas lights? Or are you in love with the timeless tenets of the word of God? Are you one of those people who, when any of the hot button topics come on the table, then all of a sudden your Christianity begins to peel like a sunburn. You're a Christian until they bring abortion on the table, until they bring the pride flag on the table. Then all of a sudden your Christianity is a little, it's like, well, no, you know, we need to have understanding and we need diversity and we need this and we need that. That's not Christianity. That's just being a chameleon. You change according to whether you're on a leaf or whether you're on the desert floor. That's not faithfulness to God. True Christians will adhere to this word. The Bible tells us that they will lose their lives. They will be marchers. They will go to their grave saying, well, I don't know about all that new world order, but I'm a Christian and I can't do that. And that is how they're going to die. They're going to die with those words on their lips. Long live Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And they will be sub sublimely empowered to give up their lives. They're not going to chop and change. Many of the marchers don't even know who they are. Building a house for God starts with, do you know who you are building a house for? Do you know who you are raising a tower up for? Do you know actually who is your motivation? Who is the subject and the object of your affection? Is it Jesus plus your boyfriend? Jesus plus your career? Jesus plus the IVF process? Is Jesus sharing space with someone else? And then we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 19 to 22, that Yah is warning King Solomon, okay, fine, I accepted the house. Your father wanted to build the house, and he was so enthusiastic that he actually raised the funds before his death. God told David that he could not build the house because his hands were dirty, but David was so committed to making sure that God would have a proper temple. That David was like, okay, I've been a man of war. I've shed blood. I've killed people. This is true. The adultery is there. I'm not going to gloss over it. I'm not perfect. But you can't stop me loving you, God. And this man held the greatest crowdfunding of all time. He raised so much money, so much gold, so much cedar, so much silver, so much everything that eventually... They had too much, and the people had to be restrained from giving. Hold this in your minds about people who had to be told, stop giving. It is enough because we are in a culture where people say that giving is not necessary anymore. And I'm not teaching any of this for personal whatever, so please just park that car at your garage. This is the word of God. David simply told the people what the plans were in his heart. He was transparent. He told the elders, he told the priests, he told the heads of the father's houses that it was burning in him to raise up this project for the Lord. But he knew that he was disqualified. And all the holy people, all the Levites, as well as the people generally who weren't in that meeting, David spoke to leadership. And he told them what the desire was and how that God wasn't going to accept it from his hands. But he still told them the day will come where their house will go up, whether it's from my hand or another. 
shall we not raise what the house of God needs? And the people were told of this need and they began to bring and bring and bring and bring and bring until the priests had to tell them, cease, it is enough. And then they stopped. So the people stopped bringing and David put all those things into a trust. That was basically what it was. He put all those things into a trust, into storage with the priesthood until the time should come. And when it was Solomon's turn, the Lord spoke to Solomon and he told him, okay, you're raising up this temple and I respond to your father's desire and to your effort and all that you have done. I think it took 10 years to get the first temple built. So I'm responding to all this time, all this investment, all this wealth and all this effort. And I respond by saying, that I choose this house. I, the Lord, choose this house. I put my name on it. You can read all of that in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. But the part that focused, that caught my attention as I was preparing this word is the part where God was warning King Solomon that he would leave. He would depart from that temple. He said that he would leave the temple or any place that they built for him if the people were to scorn righteous living to follow idols and commit sin. So in the Old Testament, sin was expunged by bringing a bull or some other animal, the shedding of blood. The picture of this we see in the Garden of Eden where God kills the animal and clothes Adam and Eve in the skin because their sin, their commission of sin, their desire or their willingness or their acceptance to step, step away from the word of God has left them bereft. It's left them naked. It's left them weak. And so blood must be shed to cover the sin. And so in the Old Testament, at the time of the temple, it was just like that. But then in books like Isaiah and in books like Jeremiah, you see the Lord complaining. And the situation he's complaining of is that people, haven't got, people have gotten used to the atonement process. So you see the Lord complaining and he's saying, did I tell you that I rejoice in the blood of bulls and goats? Now, this may sound counterintuitive. It may sound strange. You, Lord, are the one who set up all the complicated processes of washing and slaughtering and put the bowl here and put the entrails here and boil that in that pot and stick it with the two-pronged fork. So what are you saying? Have I told you that I delight in it? What God is saying is that, yes, I have set up a process by which your sins are taken away. But God observed in the people the understanding that once the blood has been shed, they just need to keep going the way that they were going. They were getting used to bringing the bullock. They were getting used to bringing the turtle doves. They were getting used to bringing the baby sheep or the kid or the goat, whatever it is they had to offer. Because with the removal of the sin, they went back to their lives and they did not change fundamentally inside now you see this flaw in the external house that they built a place of sacrifice yes a place of worship yes a place to honor god yes but a place that people also got used to and i'm putting it to you today on the lord's behalf that even though we have a different blood that has been shed for us christians behave exactly the same today they have gotten used to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They've gotten used to the fact 
that the blood takes away our sin. They've gotten used to the privilege of repentance. Most believers do not even repent. They don't see why they should. They prefer to argue for the sin and say, but why are you judging me? And everyone struggles and you shouldn't look down on me. Can you imagine being in a climate and a culture now where you speak of sin and people get defensive instead of saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Thank you for pointing it out. My heart is actually cut. Let me return to the secret place and seek my God. In the old days, people got used to the fact that I just need to make a sacrifice and then my hands are clean. But the Lord observed that there was no change in the heart. And so as they got closer and closer and closer to the time where he would ultimately judge them, he began to tell them that I hate your sacred days. He set up the sacred days, but he began to tell them, I disdain these sacred days that you celebrate at the house with me. I detest your sacrifices. They cut the throat of the bull, but God is saying, your hands are the ones that are bloody. And yet the person isn't even the one who's killing the sacrifice. All you did was put your hands on it. And then the priests following certain protocols that only the Levites could carry out. The priests would do the slaughtering, but God was saying this process by which the sin is taken away is being abused because I can see that your hearts are as rebellious after the sacrifice as before you're using me and you're using the blood and you're not changing. And people are doing the same thing today. They're taking the blood of Jesus Christ for granted. They're taking the house of God for granted. They're taking the ministers of God, the fivefold ministry that God has raised up, prophets, apostles, pastors, evangelist teachers, they're taking them for granted. They have no respect for those offices. They're saying that some of the offices are dead and don't exist. The apostles died and apparently all apostles have now come to an end. And so God is seeing that even though we have a superior sacrifice in Christ, People are still managing to cheapen what Jesus Christ has done for us. And they still want to be called children of God. Imagine this. Imagine this conundrum. You don't actually believe that the Red Sea opened. You don't actually believe that Mary conceived her son with no male seed. You don't actually believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead. You don't actually believe anything in the Old Testament affects us today. American Christians in particular have been told that the Old Testament is not for today. Can you believe this confusion? The whole Bible split into by modern day preachers here, disseminating this confusion across the world, having people focus on the New Testament only, disregard the Old Testament when the Old Testament is the clearest picture of the personhood of Yah who he is, his character, what he likes and what he doesn't like. Can you imagine someone gives you a book about themselves and you're like, I'll look at the cliff notes and try to figure it out. People disregard who God is. And then they claim that they have the deepest and most intimate relationship with him. How can you have an intimacy with somebody that you don't know? People out there have Bibles with enough dust to grow in a healthy potato crop. How is this possible? And so the Lord says, because of tears, the house of God has fallen to disrepair. Because of Christians who neglect their duty, the word of God is blasphemed every day. This is basically saying that the state of the church is such that 
people outside the church curse the church. So the state of Christianity, the endless child abuse, sexual pedophile scandals have made people wonder if the pastors are interested in the word of God or in the pants of small children and the women and the men in the church. The amount of exposés, the amount of false prophecy and lies on the internet, the amount of false prophetic conferences that are going on and you're driving three states over because the word of God is there and the man of God is there and there's nothing in that place but wind and a dent in your gas budget. But off you go. The word of God is blasphemed because the power has left the church, because the church is as compromised as the world. When you mix the, the church into the world, the church does not carry enough bleaching power to whiten the world anymore. In fact, the church comes out and goes, whew, we did our best. And you're looking and the church is as brown as the people out there rolling around in the mud. No difference. Beyonce is having a concert. Well, the gospel crowd and the unsaved crowd are right in there, bumping hips and shoulders. Bless Jesus. There's no difference. There's no come out from among them and be separate. There's no take up your cross and follow me. And so the, the, the word of God is blasphemed every day. People mock the church because... The biggest billboard for God's word is the people who are apparently following God's word, except that it's not happening too excellently. And so people blaspheme God. They blaspheme him. They mock him or attempt to, for God cannot be mocked. But people sure do try, don't they? He said, build my house and bring the best that you have into the storehouse. I am the excellence of all things. Why do you rob me in your gifts and offerings? Will a man rob God? Will a man withhold more than his rights and expect the goodness of God to come upon him? Will he withhold his gift from the altar and think I will increase him and do good to him? Indeed, I will not. I will send holes into his bags and a dearth upon his house. Tell them all this, that the altars are broken down and the prayers are of poor quality. Prayers are of flesh and not of power. Prayers that lift up themselves instead of lifting up the name of Jesus and unleashing the power of the word of God. People of God, do you not know that the mightiest weapon we have is the name of Jesus and the word of God. Do you not know that Satan is such a brawler that he will not respect tears or pleas or anything except you go at him, hammer and tongs with the word of God. If you don't seal up your home with this word and putting the blood on the doorpost, Devil, I dare you in the name of Jesus. You cannot cross the bloodline. You cannot have my children because we are under the wings of the Lord. His word is our shield and our buckler. He is our refuge, the most high. And so no evil will befall us in this house. And no plague will come near our dwelling place. 
And if you try it, he has given the angels charge over us to keep us in all our ways. I speak, I prophesy over the children in this house, over myself and pleading to the Lord for my husband, who is the head of this house, that we will be kept in our ways by the angels of the Lord. We will not transgress the word of the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that going on in the homes around the world? The Lord says that the prayers are of flesh. Oh God, please help me. Oh God, it's not fair at the office. Oh God, this is a fan favorite. Why is this happening to me? You read about Job in the Bible, and then you're asking why things are happening to you. There are people who are having Job-like experiences. Those people have the right to ask those things. There are people who are in terrible, terminal battles, battles for their lives with things that are eating at them, things that are incapacitating them. And those people are fighting tooth and nail using the word of God because their life has actually gotten caught in the teeth of the destroyer. And there's no space for prayers that contain flesh, prayers that have no power, prayers that are lifting up, well, God, my condition. And sometimes it's hard to fight when you're in pain. Sometimes it's very hard to fight when the enemy continually presses you up against the wall. And this is why we are a community of faith. I know that COVID came and caused a lot of people to sit at home, but there are a lot of people who were sitting at home before that, bored with church, disgusted with the house of God. In some way, it's because the church is failing, but a lot of people, they just gathered their skirts, gathered their purse, took their kids, and marched on out. Offense. Church hurt. I've spoken about this before. I'm not judging you if something happened to you in the church, but I find it curious that there are no people suffering from work hurt. Church hurt, something happens. They've hurt me. They don't understand me. I'm no longer going to church because if that's how Christians are, I'm not going. But it's so hard to find a person who's suffering from work hurt, which is where your boss disrespects you. They cut your salary. They put you on probation. They persecute you. They're outright rude to you. People are throwing food in the face of the fast food workers. Nobody's suffering from work hurt because everybody needs money to keep a roof over their heads. And so they're just tolerating all the stuff that happens at work, unfair performance reviews, getting demoted when you don't deserve it, not getting promoted when you deserve it. People don't leave employment because they're suffering from work hurt, but they're quick to walk away from God because of events that happen. And work hurt is constant trauma. But somehow there's machinery to process that and keep going to work for the money. But to process something that happened in 2017 and get back into the house of God where you can be built up as a tree of righteousness, receive divine instruction, participate in corporate worship, and grow, well, church hurt. It's something to think about. And God is saying that he is the excellence of all things. So why are people robbing him in gifts and offerings? Such a thorny area in the church, an area that I have been watching increase for at least the last five to seven years. Different types of teachings. We don't need to tithe. We don't need to give offerings unless it's to the poor. Many personal beliefs and instructions, but personally... I'm not one to actually argue scripture with people. This is what I said in the beginning when I started doing this work for the Lord. Don't ask me what I think because I'm sitting here and I'm standing here telling you what the Lord says. 
So the Lord is the bigger monolith, right? The Lord is that massive mountain, the mountain, the stone that will come out of heaven and crush the head of gold and the shoulders of silver and the belly of, I think it's bronze and the thighs of iron and the legs and feet of clay. The Lord is that mountain that is coming to crush all the thoughts and ideas and belief systems and the conferences and the atheism. He's coming to crush all that. So he's the monolith. And behind me, behind him, is just this tiny little pebble called Celestial that for the time being, he is pleased to use her because she can speak English and he sent her to prophesy to America. So what is the point of asking the pebble? Hey, pebble, do you have views? What? I broke off the mountain. I am a little piece broken off the monolith. Why on earth would I be made of a different composition than what the monolith says? Isn't this the posture of the people who love God? This is the posture of the people who love God. He is the mountain and we are just tiny little granules, pebbles that have broken off the mountain and are lying at the base waiting for the day when we will be back one whole, no separation with that mountain. So there's no need to argue the scripture because the scripture is there. All that remains is when you have the scripture, when somebody actually gives you the teaching that you're lacking because maybe you're watching stuff on YouTube and it sounds good to you. That's what's happening in this generation. A lot of people's faith is built off of what sounds good to them. That sounds good. That sounds like something I can do. And if you check it, the fan favorite theology is the theology that costs you nothing. Zero cost Christianity, zero emissions Christianity doesn't need any effort. You can watch from home. You don't need to be diligent to find a house of God. It's funny. If you don't have a job, you'd be willing to commute three hours from New Jersey to New York. If you got a job here or back the other way, if you got a job in New Jersey, but once there's not a church within eight feet of your house, well, then there's no good houses of worship Christians. The word of God will challenge you. Who of you wanting to build a tower will not first sit down and, and count the cost? This God and the following of him will cost everything. It will cost everything. It will cost more time than you think you have available. It will cost more prayer than you think you have available. It will cost waking up sometimes to pray because the spirit will stir you. And if you keep ignoring him, he will simply suck all your sleep out of you. And then you'll be laying there with dry eyes until you finally get it. That when he comes and visits at 3 a.m., you're supposed to get up and pray. The minute you get up and pray for 30 minutes, 40 minutes with worship and songs, the minute you do that, single person who has nothing else to do but that, he will bless you and you will sleep great. Even if it's three more hours until morning commute, you will sleep great. You will be rewarded by waking up so refreshed because God never takes without giving more than he took. Building this tower cost everything. David knew that. David was the first one to put into the house of God for the project that he had on his heart. He was not deterred by the fact that God said, Mm, you're not that clean, not you. He was like, well, you can't stop me loving you, God. How many people are doing that versus how many people are arguing that we should not judge Doja Cat? Christians, seriously, seriously. I hope that wherever you are listening to this, 
The word of God is going right over your excuses, right under your complacency and zinging straight towards your heart to pierce that armor that is keeping you as less than perfect in the eyes of the Lord. Why do you rob me in your gifts and offerings? Will any man rob God? Will a man withhold more than his right and expect God to still be good to him? So you want health, wealth, healing, a husband, a wife, uh, a career, um, your children to be blessed. You want no sickness. You want that disease to clear up. You want a ton of things. And then God is like, what are you bringing to the table? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm here and I believe in you, don't I? God is saying, why are people withholding more than his right and still expecting his goodness? Why are you withholding more than the rightful worship of God, which includes your substance? You're not a farmer unless you are in Kazakhstan right now. If you have Wi-Fi and you are in Kazakhstan or somewhere in rural Idaho, then you are a farmer. But even so, I doubt you're trading goats and cattle and sheep. You're converting those things into the modern units of wealth. So how is it, how is it a wise rebuttal to say, well, no, no, that, that was in the old days when they had sheep and goats. I hear these things and I just, I just look and I say, Lord, do they hate you so much that any lie will do? Because they, they say it was sheep and goats, but then they act like the sheep and goats weren't the wealth of those people. So the people were giving nothing because it was sheep and goats or it was their wealth that they were bringing into the temple. It, it was their wealth. In fact, they did have money because Jesus talks about denarius and paying the taxes. But when it came because they knew that what God actually wanted was not money, but those things, they would go, those who didn't farm. So city people, they would go and purchase with the denarii those things to bring because that was what he required. And Jesus is talking in Hebrews. It's actually there in Hebrews chapter seven, where he says, here men collect the tithe. So people swear that tithing has fallen away. I, I don't know where it fell on the, on the right side or the left or at the back or off the barn. I don't know where the tithe fell, but there's a common belief that it has fallen away. But Hebrews seven, which I will read shortly, it's talking about here on earth, men collect the tithe. But then it says there he collects something else, something spiritual. So Hebrews 7 makes it clear that this sowing into God's house, this bringing of a tenth of all your substance. If you are not a farmer, don't pretend. This bringing into the storehouse that there may be food in his house, Malachi 3 Hebrews 7 is actually showing how here on earth the priests still collected, but it is tied to an unseen Jesus collecting something else. This principle was established before even the law. So let us read from Genesis 14, 18 and 20. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, that him would be Abraham. And he said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, 
Who has delivered your enemies into your hand? And he gave him a tithe of all. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. So the brief backstory to this is there's a war that has just happened. It was a war of four kings against five. There was one king who had all the five cities of the plain. If you've ever wanted to know who were the five cities of the plain that God judged, along with Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah are the famous ones for their decadent and perverse homosexual lifestyles, their cruelty, their evil, their lack of hospitality, their greed. But there were three other cities that God pronounced judgment, and they were just called the five cities of the plain. So you can find what their names are in Genesis chapter 14. Those five cities had been under... I would guess you could say subjugation. They were conquered at one point and they were paying tribute to this king called Shedelaomer. That was his name, King Shedelaomer. And they rose up after 12 years of paying tribute and they said, we're not going to do this anymore. We rebel. And they went down to the Valley of Kings to have a war with this man and his allies. So the ruling king had three allies, making it four kings against the five kings um, of the plain. And they were beat bad. And this is just an object lesson that you really shouldn't be in sin and start wars. I always say this. It is not good for sinful people to go and start wars because you will always get beat. If you don't get beat immediately, then it's sort of like storing up the beating for a final day of general group beatery. But these people reaped the evil of their ways immediately. There was no favor with them. They were routed. The Bible says that they were running across the plain, which was filled with tar pits. So all the soldiers are falling in these tar pits, the, the horses, but the kings managed to escape. But Abraham's nephew, Lot, who was living where? Sodom and Gomorrah got captured. Lot and all his goods got captured by the victorious kings and carried off. Carried off. So when Abraham heard about it, he roused himself. Abraham had a standing army of 300 men. He took his 300 men, all of them young men raised in his own house, treated like his own sons, ran off, rescued Lot, got all Lot's stuff back, got all the other spoils that these kings had stolen from the five evil kings, let's just say, brought it all back. And Abraham is sitting, and then it says, a man who, let me describe this man as he is described um, from Hebrews 7 and 10. This man is described as having no mother and having no father. And this man, his name is King of Salem, and Salem is derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So this man's title is King of Peace, King of Righteousness. He has no father, he has no mother, he has no genealogy. It says he doesn't have beginning of days and he doesn't have end of life and he is made like the son of God and he is an eternal priest. And this is just Jesus. This is Jesus showing up all the way in the Old Testament in the first book, Genesis 14, because he's the only one that's the eternal priest, a priest forever before the Lord. And this man, Melchizedek, shows up. So he's not part of the four kings who have fought, and he's not part of the five kings. He just shows up. And it says he blesses Abraham, the servant of God Most High. I'm reading Genesis 14 again. God who possesses all of heaven, God who possesses all of earth, and he blesses God himself who has delivered Abraham's enemies into his hand. And Abraham, hearing this blessing,
takes a tenth of everything that he has won, including Lot's stuff, and he tithes it to this man. So there's no Moses yet, and there's no law, and there's no prophet Malachi establishing the tithe. And this man of the Spirit of God gives to God a tenth of everything. This is before Abraham has checked what he's won back. And Abraham is even so righteous that as he's handing over the spoils and the booty back to these um, kings that have been routed and spoiled, they are saying, no, Abraham, take, take a portion for yourself. And he says, no, I will take nothing from you. Abraham doesn't want unrighteous people's increase. He says, no, I will take nothing from you. Only let my young men that went to fight the battle, let them take something. So some provisions and maybe some sandals and stuff out of there, maybe a, a new robe or two. Let them take something. Let the young people have something. But I myself, Abraham, want nothing of this because I don't want anyone else going out later and saying, I made Abraham rich. Modern people, can you touch that level of righteousness? Can you keep your hand off dirty money and a deal? Americans, whom God has said, the nation is coated over with the slime of corruption. Are you actually hearing the word of God as it exists, when it is preached with truth? Are you hearing the challenge that is in these pages for us who say we are Christians? You say you are saved in this modern era and you are out courting male to male, female to female and saying, God loves that too. Can you hear the challenge, the level of sanctification that this man was walking in? Babylonian from Ur of the Chaldees, born again, blessed of God most high. There is no law. There is no Moses. Nothing is on a stone tablet. And the heart of Abraham immediately knows to always turn right and not to be a goat on the left. But the modern church has everything written down and will argue and will complain and will say, but it's not for today. This is a challenge. This is a real challenge. If you're listening, if you're really listening, the Bible and the gospel is not cheap. Please understand that. And so here's the full Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. Let's go. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren. Though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them 
of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. God is saying that when you obey the law to bring him his rightful portion, you participate in this sentence here. The lesser is blessed by the better. Who's bigger? You are God. Who's better? You are God. Who's lesser? You are God. And yet, for a portion of all he gives you, when you return that portion to him, it says the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive the tithe. So this is the New Testament to all who say that the tithe has fallen away because the law has fallen away. I don't even know where that twisted theology came from because the Bible clearly says that Jesus Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He is the completion of everything that the law says. If the law has fallen away, then we're free to commit murder because the law concerning murder is in the Old Testament. If that has fallen away, then just go out and, you know, shoot your shot. The cops won't come after you because murder no longer applies because we're in 2023. This is the fallacy. This is the false teaching. This is the fakery. This is the yeast, the leaven that has entered the house of God. That certain things are not for today. How, how does a group of people just decide certain things don't apply? We have decided, we the people have decided, this will not apply, it's not for today. I heard it on TV, I heard it on the Watchtower News, I heard it somewhere and therefore I subscribe to it and automatically I cut it off. It doesn't apply to me anymore. I am free of this thing. How, how do you pronounce yourself free of things that the, that the Bible says nothing will fall away, not one jot or one tittle? It says the sons of Levi, it's talking about the priesthood. The priesthood still exists. Churches have not been done away with. Churches still exist. God still calls it his house. It still exists. He says they have a commandment to take the tithes from the people according to the law, which we have just heard has not fallen away. And it says that even this priesthood themselves paid the tithe. For when the tithe was established, Levi, the priestly tribe, it says he was in the loins of his father, Abraham, to go down to Isaac, to go down to Jacob, who also paid tithes. You can also read, and we will briefly look at Haggai chapter 1, because this, this word will not be complete without looking at Haggai, because Haggai is the chapter, just a moment please, Haggai is the chapter that matches this section where the Lord is no longer talking about will a man rob God. That's in Malachi chapter three. And I will look at that before this closes. God says, if you think you can withhold your gift from the altar and still receive increase, increase means blessing, and still think that I will do good to you, I will not. I will send holes into your bag and a dearth upon your house. A dearth is when you are lacking. So a dearth is when you subscribe to wrong teaching and then say, well, I exit myself from this stuff because I think it's just a way for pastors to steal money. And they do steal money. Do you know that some people commit murder with knives, but knives are still being produced because knives have usages and people who know what knives are for use them properly. And some other people who want to abuse knives use them improperly 
but that has never stopped the production of a knife in the history of knifery. So what does that tell us? Do we really think that God's laws will fall away because the shepherds of the houses have found a way to manipulate and abuse it? Do you not know that God is just and will render to these people exactly what they deserve? Are you supposed to be the judge and jury and say that you will withhold from the Lord more than is right and you're going to rob God because if you give, you know that the robber up front is going to rob God twice? You don't get to decide that. So a dearth means a lack. God is basically saying that he will send a famine of needs into your house. You who withhold, you withhold a little, but do you know that God can block you from things that money can't buy? Favor, opportunities, open doors, being the one who's chosen when there's only one or two spots. There's no money that can pay for those things. Those things are when you are found in the soft spot of God. When you're obedient to God's words, when you love him and like David, you're zealous to do his things the right way. God gives you things that are way above money. He gives you things that you cannot purchase, such as good health, long life, peace in your marriage, children that are excellent, growing up like, like just fresh trees and bushes. Children, everyone is like, you know, your child is so pleasant and your child is such a joy to work with. That feeling in your heart when people talk about your little one or your teenager like that, you, you don't have enough on your bank card ever to, to pay for that. What, what God can give to you as the better is more than you can withhold from him as the lesser. And so he's definitely saying that these things that have crept into the house, you're hurting yourself and you are bringing dearth. Dearth just means scarcity. It just means lack. It means you're looking for it and it's not there. And that's because you want to subscribe to lies and say it with your chest and you will pay for that. So let's go to Haggai. Haggai is basically talking about King Darius ruling and the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, the prophet, and it's concerning Zerubbabel, who is the son of Judah's governor. And the word says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, this people say, this time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. But the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? And this temple lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways, exclamation mark. You have sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag of holes. Consider your ways, thus says the Lord of hosts. Go up to the mountains and bring down wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. God is giving a clear command to the people of those days. Build my house. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. 
For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and the grain and the new wine and on the oil and on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Listen to that. Exactly what I was saying five minutes ago by the Spirit of the Lord. Who has the money to manipulate the weather? And I'm not being facetious. I'm not talking about the harp and the dues and all that. Who has the money to be able to pay for good weather? If you're a farmer out there in the United States, if you're a farmer anywhere in the world, do you have enough to pay God to give you the rain when you need it? To withhold the rain so that the plants actually get enough sun? So that the lands drain properly? Can you pay for that? You can't pay for that. All those things are in the hands of the Lord. And God is telling them that you're sitting there and you're focused on your own lives. So you're sitting in paneled houses. A paneled house is a very expensive one that is wood paneled on the inside. So God is saying that everyone has built himself his little homestead, his little mansion. Everyone is a little prepper out there. God is saying, you're taking care of your own house, but my house lies in ruins. You're working on different aspects of your life, but the most important aspect, your relationship with me is it's choking. It's, it's gasping. It's on its last legs. Christianity is the last thing you do for the last five minutes before you go to bed. That's when you pay attention to me. That's when you read two scriptures and then you fall asleep and you're like, bless me, God, bless me, God. And you think that's enough to keep the demons and the devils and the stress that is coming away from your door. And then he's saying, no, this is why you're putting in so much effort. This is why you're sowing so much and you have such little results. This is why when you're eating, you still feel hungry. This is why you drink, but you're not full. You wrap yourself up in warm stuff, but you're still cold. Basically, your efforts are not hitting the mark. It's not enough. And why is that? Because I'm second and you're first. This is what the Lord is saying. My needs are after your needs. I'm the servant, Jesus is saying, and you're the master. So you walk into the house and you sit at the table and you feed first. And whatever is less, that's what you give me. And he's saying, consider your ways. He, he speaks first to the material things that he will eat up from the people who do this. But then he even goes so far as to say that even the heavens won't give you rain. The earth won't give you fruit. Imagine God saying that he's going to weaponize the environment, the earth and the sky against you. Lock up all the favor and always have you coming last. That's difficult. That's a high steep price to pay because you don't want to be obedient. And so that's the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 2 to verses 11. And the last thing we'll look at now is Malachi, chapter 3. This is the last place I will look. In having carried out the Lord's message. And we will start from verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? The Lord's answer, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruits of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says 
the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So God is here remonstrating with people. In Malachi, this is the last prophetic book in the Bible before you go into the New Testament. And he's saying to them, why are you cheapening my worship? So exactly what God is complaining about here, it still happens today. People believe that they can worship God without any form of sacrifice. They believe that it has no sacrifice of time, has no sacrifice of effort. I spoke of how if the church is too far away, you can't find one conveniently. It may cost you something to wake up a little earlier in the morning and go to the one that you do find that is good. Then you'll go maybe once a month because it's too much effort, but I bet you won't go to your job once a month. You will go every day or as is required. So there's a duality there. When it's time to build your house, you're on point, you're on game. When it's time to build God's house, it's optional. He says that you rob me. And when you're asking how you rob me, he says in your tithes and what you offer. And that brings a curse to you because you rob God. And he says, even the whole nation does this. And I would just venture to say that this is an international pandemic of people who do this. Now, all you're doing, as he says, I will blow your increase away. This is somebody intending to do you good. And, and, and the devourer raises his voice and says, hey, I'm sorry, there are deficiencies in this house. There is a curse here. I'm under the roof here. I'm operational here. And the blessing will be like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to intrude. You're absolutely right. I see the holes. I see Haggai chapter one operating. I see the bag with holes. Even if I were to go in there, I would finally, I would fall through one of those holes. So I will desist. I will move away. And God says, bring your, your tithe to the storehouse so that there can be food in the house. And then he says, try me. So this is when you have been obedient to the word of God, when you have washed your face and washed off all the delusion that you picked up from the 800 videos you've been watching before this one, he says, test me. See if I won't open doors in heaven for you and pour out such blessing that there will not be room enough to contain it. The windows of heaven will be open. One of the blessings of the windows of heaven being open is that you will pray and God will hear you. God will heed your prayers. And there's a very good backup for this that you can look at in Psalm 41, where it says that when you look after the poor, when you are actually kind to those who are in need, you don't avoid them. You don't look over them and you don't tell them, go away and be well-fed and may the Lord bless you. It says that the benefit there is that when you are sick, God will hear your prayers. It also says that another benefit is that God will preserve you and, and make you upright on your sickbed. This means that when you're flat on your back, you can bring up to God and say, God, remember my goodness to those who did not have. Remember how I upheld those who were lacking. This is aside from your tithe because many people will say, aha, so I'm not going to tithe. I'm going to take that 10% and give it to somewhere, someone else. Please understand that the Lord is saying, Tithes and offerings, these are two completely separate things. The tithe is sacrosanct, it is sacred. You are not to touch it, belongs to the Lord. Offerings, you place them. There's offerings for widows, offerings for the poor, offerings who have needs, offerings to even build up a project like the one David raised up. There are different ways to do offerings. And so you can come to God, read Psalm 41. It's a very good one. 
And you can see that it says that God will even, one of the protections of Psalm 41 is that when you are one who holds up the poor, guess what? God says that he will not allow the desires of your enemy to overtake you. This is all the plots and plans for those wicked people at work because work is just filled with wicked people nowadays. They will not prosper. They will get together and they will conspire and they will like, right, we're going to blame her. And then all of a sudden the plan will break down somehow because God will get into the midst of them and scuttle their plans like battleships. They will lose. And it will be all because you are one who has mercy on the homeless person and doesn't just walk past them and throw a dollar in the cup, but you actually stop and think, why don't I just go and get a meal? Why don't I get a coffee? I have time. Those things God doesn't overlook. So the windows of heaven will be open, blessings will be poured out, and he says you will not be able to contain what he gives you. He will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. This means when the same devourer comes to the house of a tither, the Lord's word, his promise will be standing there and say, you cannot pass. This is the house of one who does not rob the Lord in tithes or offerings. He will not destroy the fruit of your ground. He will not cause your vine to fail to bear fruit for you in the field. This is not only speaking of agriculturalism. Please listen. God is actually saying that no harm is going to come to your children. Your vine is your wife in the house and your fruit is the baby in her belly. You can stand on this verse when the enemy keeps trying to empty out your womb with miscarriages. You can stand on this verse in obedience and say, Lord, this is a tither's house. Preserve my seed in my wife's belly and bring us out twins. Comfort us for the losses we have suffered. Many people do not understand what is in the Bible because they exalt social media teaching, no pun intended, over sitting and reading this thing and seeing the wonderful life-giving promises that are in here. And the Lord says, all the nations will call you blessed. You will be a delightful land, says the Lord. So... I hope that you have heard the word of the Lord. This last passage is Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. And when you think about it, our God should not be complete, complaining about us, okay? There's a problem in a house where a parent is constantly complaining about a child. True children of God, you say that you are the fathers. Our God should not be complaining about us. He should not be raising complaints about us. He should be able to be calling us beautiful and delightful lands because we are eager, like King David, to walk in the Lord's word. We are eager to find out what pleases God and do that. So I'm Celestial, and this is the master's voice. This is the prophetic word of the Lord that has been shared with me, brought forward with line by line Bible teaching so that you can have an understanding when the word of God is before you, then, um, there's really no need to go back and forth contention and things like that, because you're hearing the word presented and all that's left is the choice that you will make, whether you will obey it or whether you will rebuff it or whatever other outcomes you want to do. But I exhort you, if you are one of those like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If those are the words upon your lips, then Come close, not unto me and not unto what I think, but come close unto this word, which is the final say in our lives as Christians, and the Lord will surely prosper it. Oh, there is one Bible verse that has to be shared here. We as believers must really, this kind of verse 
brings a smile to my heart. And this is the tired Jeremiah speaking to God. He is complaining to God and he is telling God how hard it is when he brings forth the word of the Lord and people don't want it. And he's asking God to remember him and to separate him from those who don't have the kind of ear to hear God's word as Jeremiah did. And verse 16, this is Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16. As I was preparing this, um, it just came onto my heart and I just want to share it with you. And Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Isn't this, isn't this just wonderful? Jeremiah is saying that I came upon the truth of God's word. I was looking here and there and I was finding nuggets and I was thinking this is awesome. And I made it my food. I took it into my spirit man and I feasted upon it. I found your words and I ate them. And that word brought to me joy and rejoicing in my spirit. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And what is that name for us? It's simple. The New Testament tells us, for they were first called Christians at Antioch. If you are going to take up that title, then you are also going to take up this truth. God bless you. And until I see you again, I'm Celestial and this is the Master's Voice. Take care and goodbye.